0: Thanks, Don. God, look at the crowd out here. How many people are here for the very first roundup? Oh, isn't that great? Sit back and enjoy it. We're throwing this party just for you. (laughs) You know, I... uh, I got a call here two or three weeks ago and someone said we wanna really thank you for coming here on such short notice. My wife says that's when I operate the best is on short notice. <laughs> so let's hope it works out that way. You know, somebody out here earlier today said to me, Are you nervous when you speak of these things? You gotta be kidding, a drunk wouldn't admit it anyway, but uh you know, you sorta of feel like a, a long tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. <laughs> uh, I don't know how the hell you get these things started. I I sort of feel like Elizabeth Taylor's eighth husband. I know what to do. You just wonder how the hell to make it interesting. (laughs) God is good to see people laugh and sometimes the only exercise we get. And... uh, you can always tell a drunk. You can't tell him much, but you can tell him. I'll tell you that. <laughs> My name is Louf. I'm a recovered alcoholic,
1: <laughs>
0: and I have not found it necessary to take a drink or any other mood-altering stimulant since I walked out of a Salvation Army mission on November the sixteenth of nineteen
1: sixty-three. <clears throat> <clears throat>
0: And I'd like to share with you that there's only one way that you can get from the skid road of Vancouver in Canada to Little Rock, Arkansas, and that's only through the grace of God and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if if you've ever looked up the meaning of the word grace, it says an unearned favor. And I hear people say, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, it sort of feels like you made a brilliant decision to grace us with your presence. (laughs) And the book says, this big book, I have a copy of it here, and I will be referring to it. It's a big book, and it'll catch on one day, I'm sure, in this fellowship.
1: <laughs>
0: and if you ever find one that's fallen apart, it's probably owned by one who isn't. But it says in this book, it says, When we were driven to Alcoholics Anonymous under a lash of alcoholism. You know, I hear all kinds of things tossed around in these podiums. Many days, or we'll return your misery. I always thought... We removed misery. I didn't know we returned. It. We don't come here to be persecuted. We come here to get a suspended sentence and a little bit of community work. <laughs> <laughs> and I hear people say that alcoholics have above average intelligence, and the only place you'll ever hear that is at a bloody AA meeting, I'll tell you. <laughs> I've spoken at AA conventions from the Republic of South Africa to Dawson City in the Yukon. And I have never been at an AA convention where the theme was the keen alcoholic mind. (laughs) Tell you that. Gotta be bloody kidding. You know, I wonder sometimes if we ever realize, how many of us have stopped to realize some way, how do you portray... Your, your message to society. How do you get along in society? I think of the story of the, this psychiatrist, this frustrated piano tuner. He went out to this mental hospital one day to see his alcoholic patients and about 10 o'clock in the morning, he went out for a coffee break and here was this guy in the yard and he had a wheelbarrow full of cement and a bunch of bricks and he was building this wall. And he looked at him and he said, you know, he said, I've never seen bricklaying like that in my life. She said, it's a piece of symmetrical beauty. He said, pray tell me why you're in here. Well, he said, my family resented me, so they had me committed. Well, he said, I'm going to tell you, we could use people with your talents on the outside. And he said, I'm on the board of this institution. And he said, come Thursday when it meets, I'm going to stand on your behalf. And he said, I'll have you out of here on Monday. And he turned to walk away and this jackass threw a brick and hit him in the back of the head and knocked him down. And out he went. When he finally come to, he stood up and he looked at this guy and he said, now, why did you do that? He said, I just didn't want you to forget Thursday. <laughs> and that's the way that we've portrayed our message for years to society and wonder why they reacted the way they did. The little gal that smoked this morning, God bless her for talking about our singleness of purpose, you know. Uh, Where I come from, and I can't speak for anywhere else, and I would like to say that there was one thing that Dr. Bob said, and it was right here, that Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share experiences, strength, and hope with each other, unquote. That they may solve their common problems and help others to recover from alcoholism. There's a lot of difference between sharing experiences than imposing opinions. (laughs) And where I come from, you know, when you call on a new guy... If he don't know his alphabet, he's in one hell of a mess. we got E-A and G-A and A-A and N-C-O-A and A-C-O-A, and he's in a hell of a mess if he's illiterate. I want to tell you, this thing was designed by drunks for drunks, and if we lose sight of that, we're in bloody trouble. You know, I was thinking last summer when I spoke at the convention in New Orleans, I seen a man there... Three and a half weeks sober, and he had been sober for 37 and a half years, and he went back drinking. Really. In the city that I come from in the last two years, 35 years drunk, 34 years drunk, 29 years drunk, a husband and wife of 23 years drunk, a husband and wife of 19 drunk. And don't tell me it's because they didn't go to meetings. It's got nothing to do with it. They've gone to lots of meetings. This is a program that was founded, built, and still exists. On one drunk, loving another. So I think the thing is, is that we share experiences. And that's why I I like to talk about this book. I was born on the east coast of Canada, right on the border of the state of Maine. Like today live on the west coast, province of British Columbia, 130 miles from Seattle. The Bible says the wise men come from the east, and I've been wise enough to stay to hell in the west. I'll tell you that, about the extent of my wisdom. But I think sometimes we we get all confused in theory, and we lose sight of what we're trying to market, and we're trying to market love, compassion, and understanding. And that reminds me of the story of the guy that died and went to heaven, and they put him in this gorgeous room of absolute luxury. And he was sitting there and he looked out the window and he looked down in the clouds and here was a whole bunch of young people down there, half nude, rock music, going, half drunk, dancing, having a ball. And he called God in and he said, I'm looking down here in the clouds and I've seen all these people down here, rock music, going they're half nude, dancing, having a ball. What's that? He said, that's hell. Well, he said, you sent me to the wrong place. That's where I'm supposed to be. So he said, okay, we'll send you down. So they got his stuff together and they sent him down and he arrived and he they put him in this dirty, filthy, grungy, stinking, hot, bloody room. And he, he called Satan in and he said, what's this? He said, this is hell. Well, he said, what's this up here in the clouds? To see all these people dancing, rock music going, having a ball. And Satan said, that's our marketing department.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so what type of a marketing department do we have here? Are we giving him a whole bunch of stuff where you say, just read the big book, go to meetings and pray and everything you will get better? Or are we telling him the truth, as it says, was working with others? And I would like to be able to blame everything on my mother and father, as I see a lot of things happening today. But in the very back of this book, in that story I related, it says the medical profession, I'd say I'm the way I am now because of what happened to me as a child. But AA has taught me I'm the way I am now because of the way I reacted to what happened to me as a child. And that's the whole thing that I see is the way I reacted. It's like the two brothers that were in court on a charge. And one was a lawyer and one was a skid row tramp. And the magistrate read out the charge and asked them how they pleaded and they pleaded guilty and he said, pray tell me how you two brothers are in this predicament. And they said, it's the way we were raised. (laughs) It's sad. Uh, I never really knew my parents I've heard many stories about my father. I've heard that he hung himself. I really have no idea what the real truth is. My real mother owned a hotel in a railroad divisional town, and uh, she was a gorgeous lady. And she supplied the men with everything. And I was taken away from her when I was nine months of age, from what I can gather, and turned over to the two people who raised me. And now my, the couple that raised me, my dad was a, A wicked drunk. He drank like crazy. Yet never laid a hand on me in his life. Wherever Daddy went, he took me. When he went to get his hair cut, he took me with me and set me in the barber's chair. And I was raised in a little town, a couple of streets through it. When he went hunting, he took me with him. When he went fishing, he set me on the bank of the little stream and put a string on my rod and all these things he did. And yet Daddy had no education. None. My mom has a little education. And she was a mom. And so I look back at it today, and uh, if Daddy would have lived, uh, or when he retired, he had 50 years with the same company. Uh, when he died, uh, him and Mom, in a few more weeks, would have been married 50 years. I, My mom, uh, I just moved her to the West Coast two weeks ago to spend her final days with me, and she has an abundance of money. And she's never worked a day in her life outside the home. She was just a mom and a wife and daddy worked. And this Einstein here that they turned loose in society, if he cost us ten cents a dozen, I couldn't have kissed a hummingbird's backside, you know. (laughs) And yet, and we're going to blame our parents for the way we turned out. Isn't that sad? Even if they were alcoholics, if we believe that they're sick people, how can you blame them if they're sick people? Sooner or later, what does the book say? We must take full consequences for our past acts. It says the main problem with the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. You can talk about any portion of a man's anatomy. He'll even brag about some of them, but don't discuss his head. (laughs) He don't like anyone in there unsolicited, prodding around in virgin territory that has never been touched. (laughs) I mean, it's brand new. And this is the whole thing. And I was given all the opportunities. But children are, are can be cruel. Uh, the kids, as a when I was about 11 or so, they, they knew who my real mom was and they started teasing me. And they teased me about her and they teased me about my big ears and I started to fight. And there's nothing wrong with that if you can fight. <laughs> but it took a good man to beat me. It didn't take him long, but it took a good one. I get all kinds of drunks coming up to me today and they're saying, no, oh, he's a good fighter too, Lou. And they got scars going in 17 directions. And I say, you got that all screwed up, buddy. Good fighters got no marks. So go look in the mirror tonight. <laughs> you know, Sugar Ray Leonard, I think, is just a hell of a scrapper. And his face is as smooth as glass. Like him and I fought totally different. He threw the punches and I stopped him. <laughs> we had totally different philosophies in fighting. But I think that's the rude awakening to many of us when we come to Alcoholics Anonymous As we come in here and we find out what we're not good at, not what we're good at. And we come in here sometimes to prove how bad we were. And we aren't bad people. We are sick people, but we are not bad people. And so I don't get into this competitive storytelling, nor do I take you on a drink-by-drink tour of Canada. But I read the book and it tells me that it says we tell in a general way what we were like. It doesn't say what we drank like. It says for me to tell in a general way what was I like when I drank, what happened and what am I like now. I can take you on a 40 or 50 minute tour right now of drinking and all I'm doing is avoiding telling you what I'm really like. I was an insecure little boy. inferiority complex. And yet I was given love at home, but I didn't know what love was. Everything that I got as a little boy, I worked for. My bicycles, my little wagons, I earned them. And I walked around with a chip on my shoulder. And if you're like that, it's usually from the block upstairs. My thing, I was put in jail when I was just over 16 years of age to do 30 days in jail. And I'm the only child. And when I got out of that, I can tell you, uh, I went to Halifax, Nova Scotia, which is the far end of Canada, and I visited most of the decent jails from there to Vancouver, British Columbia, and most of the decent skid roads, and I've sung in all the leading missions and accepted Christ as my personal savior uh, for two extra donuts if I was hungry. I did whatever I had to do to survive. Nothing had any value to me. You know, I I hitchhiked whichever way the cars was going. I wasn't dumb enough to hitchhike that way if the traffic was all going that way. Because it didn't matter where I went as long as I went. And that's the theory with society since the beginning of time with the drunk is to keep him moving. Don't let him stop. Keep him moving. Or you're in trouble if you let him stop. And you see, at home, I was under control. My mother, you see, wanted me to do this, and you don't do that. And uh, there's, what's her name, the spokesman? She told my whole story. I I was taught to lie. See, I was taught to lie. If I catch you playing with that kid again today, you're going to get a beating. Well, she never caught me. Was you over to such and such a place? No way. You see, and... God bless her. She was doing the right thing. She didn't want me in trouble. But she tried to control me. And how many people still do that today? Starting with their children. that Them kids are under total control. Like the story of the Jewish lady walking down the street and she's got a little boy in one hand a little boy in the other hand, two of them. And she meets another lady and she says, Good morning, Mrs. Colin. How old are the boys? She said, the doctor's four and the lawyer's six. (laughs) I don't know if she was an L-none or not. (laughs) But, you know, this is the way we go through life. And I started driving truck for Allied Van Lines. And that's what I did for a living. I have no great background. I see so many people today fighting for their rights.
1: What rights?
0: I'm enjoying my privilege. I have no rights in life. I lost all them drinking. I got married for nine months in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and I walked out and left that lady with a little girl. And in my drinking days, I never thought that I'd ever see them again. And her name was Darlene Lorraine. And I got another lady in Vancouver, and we had six children. And we had another girl, and I named her Darlene Lorraine. And about uh, eight months, ten months ago, uh, something like that, the wheels started going in motion for me to see my first daughter again. And I've had nothing to do with this. These are just things that starts to unfold. If you mind your own business, someday you have a business of your own to mind. And it's difficult when you're smart
1: to do that.
0: But if you look at the pattern of many alcoholics, like in my case, if brains is made elastic, I wouldn't have had enough to make a jockstrap or a mosquito. You know, I'll tell you. But I got six children in Vancouver, and I I left my family and I wound up back where I'd spent so much time on the Skid Road of Vancouver. And on November the sixteenth of nineteen sixty-three. I got on what I pray was my last drunk and I got thrown out of the Rainier Hotel on Skid Road in Vancouver at Carolyn Cordova. And I walked back up to the house where Winnie and the kids were living. And she was on welfare with five kiddies. And the lights was shut off. The phone had been disconnected. I was unemployed. She was on welfare. And she was cooking on a Coleman camp stove to feed the five kids anything she had to feed them. And Einstein came back. I was $7,300 in debt at 51 different places. That's a lot of money 30 years ago. I was in small debts court 41 times my first two years sober. I woke up that next morning, I had a half a quart of wine. And I went to take a drink and something as clear as anything could ever be, he said, Lou, your drinking days is all over. I put it back in the fridge and I said to Winnie, What's the number of Alcoholics Anonymous? She said, If you want the number, go look it up. That's the most she'd said to me in months. You know, I thought she was thinking of reconciliation or something. <laughs> we had no phone, it was disconnected. I have no idea where I ever heard the number or the name. But I went next door, and I phoned Alcoholics Anonymous, and I got the same response that this little lady this morning. The little gal, Lucy, who died of cancer, she answered the phone, and it was the most unconditional thing I've ever seen. She didn't ask me if I was Protestant, Catholic, rich, poor, black, white, anything else. She just said, what's your name, and where do you live? And I told her. And, you know, it was my luck uh, for a person of my qualities and capabilities. They sent two of the dumbest idiots I have ever seen in my bloody life. Till this day, I shall never forget that they come to see me. And they walked in, and in that condition, they listened to me for three hours. Now, anyone in the condition that I was in shouldn't have anything to say. You should be listening. But I talked for three hours, and they listened. And that's what this thing is all about. What does it say about carrying the message? It says, let him steer the conversation in any direction he likes. And are you going to sit there all night while he's drunk listen to him talk about horse racing when you never did in your life? We'll find out. all about compassion. And they listened to me. And it was two brothers. And one was really dumb. I I thought he was a mute for a while. Because he'd sit there and the other brother would talk and he'd poke him in the ribs and he'd say, Ain't that right, Don? he say, Yep. And I thought that's all he could say was, Yep. They were leaving about five o'clock. And I, this first day, I'll tell you, is the most memorable day of me, for me in alcoholics Anonymous. He was leaving and he said, Just remember, Lou, if you don't take that first drink, you'll stay sober. And he said, We'll be back and get you at eight o'clock. And when he left, I said to him, I said, Did you hear what that guy said? Now, I figured that this guy was really profound. And about three months later, I thought, how bloody inconsiderate can anyone be is to get two people to drive 40 miles to tell you if you don't drink, you'll stay sober. I'd never thought of that. <laughs> that had never entered my mind, quit drinking, to stay sober. And you think that these people are really smart and alcoholics and online. No. You don't have to tell a drunk anything brilliant at all. Don't get into any theory. Just talk common sense and he won't have a bloody clue what's going on. He'll just wander along Polly. you. He will not have a clue what in hell is going on. As long as you don't get into any theory. That's the big thing. Stay out of the theory. They left the house. They said we'd be back to get you at 8 o'clock. I ran across the alley to a guy I was house that I was drunk with the day before, and God, I want to tell you, I remember this. I ran up his back stairs and went in his house, and he was sitting there with a glass of whiskey, and he went to take a drink, and I said, put that down, i will kill you. (laughs) Well, I want to tell you one thing you cannot do from a podium is describe an expression. you got to see it. He said, "Uh, what happened to you? I said, I quit drinking. He said, when? I said, there must be six, eight hours now. <laughs> well, sir, he looked out the window, I guess, to see who in the hell was following me or who got a hold of me. And he asked me to leave, and I did. And I guess we might as well laugh about it as cry. But I'll tell you, he has never spoken a word to me from that day to this.
1: <laughs>
0: the Oral Roberts of AA had hit the streets of Vancouver. <laughs> now, what does this say in this book? It says the ex-problem drinker who is properly armed with facts about himself, not AA. Nowhere does it tell me to tell him anything about AA. It says if he is properly armed with facts about himself, he can win the entire confidence of another person in a matter of hours. Until this has been done, little or nothing can be accomplished. Isn't that interesting? I live right in Little Italy, and here I am heading out to get every Italian to pour his wine out. So they took me to my first meeting that night at 8 o'clock, and I got a black shoe on and a brown one. Now, you still can't buy shoes like that. I got black ones, brown ones, white ones, all kinds. But you can't get a black and a brown shoe in the same box. But I, here I am, six foot tall, 135 pounds, them wine sores all over me, just a handsome bastard you ever seen <laughs> I walked into that first meeting, the first guy said, welcome, you're in the right place. And I thought, now he spotted something nobody else has recognized. <laughs> and they took me up and set me right in the front row. And every speaker was, uh, you know, vintage model, my age, fifty-five, sixty. half of them with no teeth. And they'd all give them about $30 worth of change, and they'd stand and rattle that change. They'd say, material things don't mean nothing. And I thought, well, if I looked like that, material things wouldn't mean a hell of a lot to me neither. <laughs> and I watched all these people leave in Buicks and Lincolns and Cadillacs, and I thought, no, I missed something in their bloody cars. <laughs> but, you know, here's where we share experiences. I can tell you today, material things mean bugger all to me because I got them. <laughs> and we don't see that. We talk about understanding. We just don't understand. And in many, many cases, this is the whole thing about the philosophy of Alcoholics Anonymous. It says this is our basic text. It says we beg of you to study this book. It don't ask us to read it. It says we beg of you to study this book. With the new man, it says when you call on him, it says give him this book. Ask him to read him. It says after he's done that, see what his choice was to be. I didn't do that. Not at all. I didn't do that at all. You see, first of all, nobody told me about any instructions. People say there is no rules. Should read this book. What's it saying there? Says the bot. It says in the doctor's opinion. It says all we must do is follow a few simple rules. People can't say that you can't use the word recovered. They say you can't use the word cured. Read the second story in this big book where Bill was talking to Henrietta, and he said, Henrietta, I am so grateful that the Lord has cured me of this terrible disease. And the next paragraph said, that statement, the Lord has cured me of this terrible disease, has become the cornerstone of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And in the first preface, it says, this is how 150,000 alcoholics have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. It says, to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered. It doesn't say quit drinking. is the main purpose of this book. We hope these pages will prove so convincing that no further authentication will be necessary. A little further over, it says, why shouldn't we be happy? We have recovered. So I'm not a recovering alcoholic. I have a hell of a lot of fun with living, but I dealt with the drinking, And that's told me that in the book. You see, and the thing was, until I got down to trying to follow the instructions, there was no results whatsoever. I just didn't drink. And you see, most of it is because we just don't understand, and false pride has killed more drunks than bad liquor. But you see, we don't understand, and we won't listen. It's like the old guy that went to the doctor and he said to his doctor, he said, you know, the wife and I have been married, he said, for 40 years and our sex life is shot. He said, she could just tear less. He said, I don't know what to do. The doctor said, I'm going to give you this prescription. You go home at night and he said, when you're just before you go to bed and you're having your tea, he said, drop a couple of these in her tea. So they were sitting in the kitchen looking out the window and he said, sweetheart, he said, look at that gorgeous moon. And she looked out and he dropped two in hers and he said, oh, to hell, I'll put two in mine. So he did. And they both went to bed and fell sound asleep. And about three o'clock in the morning, she woke up out of this deep sleep and threw her hands up and said, I need a man. God, he woke up and said, up and threw his up and said, me too.
1: <laughs> and
0: so like I said, you do not have to wish anything bad on a drunk. Leave him alone. He will screw it up himself. Just carry the message. And that's all my responsibility is, is to carry the message. Well, four weeks after I sobered up, it was six weeks till Christmas, and we look at what we got to be grateful for. That Christmas, somebody bought my wife and I a a turkey and everything to go with it for my kids. Uh, Somebody brought us a Christmas tree and the decorations and decorated it. And somebody bought all my kitties a Christmas present, or they wouldn't have had one. And you See, these are things that I take for granted today, and yet they were so important then. You see, when I first sobered up, all I understood was what I didn't have. Oh, it's easy for you to talk, you got it. Like everybody that gave me advice was not in that situation. You know, I hear people say, stay away from women, as he goes home with his wife. Don't make any decisions for the first year. And then they say to admit you're alcoholic, admit your life is unmanageable. Come to believe in something you have never heard of, turn your life over to it. Make a decision, go tell all that crap to a stranger. Make a list of all the persons you've harmed and become willing to meet them face to face, but don't make any major decisions for the first year. I would like somebody in this crowd to tell me what in hell is a major decision. Now, I'm not that sharp, but I'm not a total write-off. These are the things I was hearing. Is all the people that were telling me these things, this is great theory. We love it. God, it's great stuff. Theory is great stuff. Pla- practical application is the pits. And talk is cheap. It takes money to buy whiskey. That's what we're dealing with in here. It's real honest to goodness things. And this is what a lot of us don't want to look at is the reality of staying sober. I found one sucker to lend me $200 and I bought a truck to start a trucking company. Now, here's a little boy with very little education from back in New Brunswick. $200 and started the truck. Trucking company. And this is a whole story in itself. You gotta visualize the ego of the Alki and the big shot items. Next thing I, I traded that truck in and I got a $700 one. Good one. This thing burnt five gallons of re-refined oil a day. There was people still trying to find their way out of the smoke in Vancouver. <laughs> then I got some business cards that cost more than the truck did. You should see these were, these were pieces of art. All jet black cards with 14 karat gold embossed letters. Citywide cartage moving and storage. Lewis Fenimore, president. If you're the only bloody employee, call yourself whatever in the hell you want. (laughs) President. you got to be kidding. Honest to God. You talk about insanity. My life was not unmanageable. It was unbelievable. (laughs) The next thing I go is I get a Cadillac. Because I, in my mind, uh, you know, that was the epitome of success, a trucking company and a Cadillac. And then I realized it's more important to be successful than look successful. And if I had to quit work at four o'clock in the afternoon, I'd get to my meeting so I could park that white Cadillac right in front of the hall. And gee, people say, God, Lou must be doing good. Now it appeared that way. And what does the book say? Outward appearances is not inward reality at all. And this is the whole thing that I find today. Is outward appearances is not inward reality at all. I don't always feel the same inside as I look outside. I'm always at my best behavior today in a meeting. Dress becomingly, act low, criticize not one bit. That's what it says in the gist for today. While I dress becomingly, at least I'm getting part of it. I think that we clean up the outside before we do any work on the inside. And so I was so busy looking for the second truck, they repossessed the first one. (laughs) And one night we were eating dinner and heard a couple of uh, noises and looked out and there went the Cadillac. They repossessed that. And people were saying, go to meetings, read that big book and things will get better. Turn it over to God, and I did, and he turned it right over to a bailiff and they repossessed it. And and I I find today in lots of cases that that borderline between humility and senility is pretty thin, you know. I hear people say, I turn it over to God every morning. And I'm thinking, you got to be kidding. When God wants me to have a job, I'll get one. I would be interested in meeting your God. <laughs> the one that I believe in does not run an employment agency. You know, I needed a drink to go apply for a job. Once I got the drink, I was too good for it, <laughs> you know. I, I I, mean, I started to see things as it was, and then all of a sudden I realized, once I got into the business world, out of the trucking business, and got involved with conditional sales agreement, you know there's nothing complicated in life today. Everything is so simple. We foul it up. They gave me this Cadillac, Cadillac, and they said, Now, Mr. Fenimore, you give us $244.81 a month, something like that. You can keep it. If you don't, we'll take it back. And it was just my luck to deal with the guy that kept his end of the bargain. He took it back. And that's what we are not used to is people keeping their end of the deal. We renege on an agreement. Our phone bill. They send me my phone bill and they said, send us $454 a month to keep talking. We don't, we unplug it. How the hell can you be a deal like that? I don't even have to remember what I owe. They send me my Visa, my MasterCard, my American Express, send us this much and you keep using it. You don't, we take it back. You can't beat a deal like that for people like us with poor memories. And do you know, even then we foul up. Even then we foul up. All I have to do is look at how I react. Like I've said, there's many things I don't do. There's two things. I never have had an easy doesn't sticker on my car and I don't have a live and let live one. We were talking the other night about that. And it's not that I'm against them. I'll buy everyone here one if you want one. But I, I see people passing me in, in the streets of Vancouver and on Kingsway, and their fingers up in the air, and their fists is going, their mouths is going to people. And they pull in front of you, and it says "Easy does it, live and let live." And you see, that's where we've always kept important information. Is where we can't read it. Put it on your bloody dash. <laughs> With my luck, the guy behind me can't read English, so I'm buggered both ways. I don't have those on there. Because this is not a, pro- a philosophy to quit drinking. This book says this is a philosophy to learn how to live sober. Man, there's a hell of a lot of difference than quitting drinking and learning how to live sober. You see, because for years and years and years, we went through life BSing our way along, and people have allowed us to do it. And rather than confront us with the truth, they'll say, oh, just hang in there and pat you on the back and let you go. And isn't that sad that we just can't tell people the truth? You know, it's like the minister. Every time you get caught when he was sent to this little parish and he was in his office and his bishop told him when he went there, he said, if you don't make it here, fella, you've had it. This is your last opportunity. And he was in his office on a Monday morning And he heard the door and the church open and these footsteps coming towards his office. And just before this person got there, he picked up the phone and he started talking. He said, no, for $3,000 a month, I won't leave this parish. He said, this is my first day in the job and I've never met any of my parishioners or any of council yet. So he said, I'm new here. I don't have a lot of time today. He said, no, for $5,000 a month, I won't leave here. He said, if you could see the condition this parish was in, you'd understand why they selected me to come here and straighten this mess out. So he said, I'm busy today, but he said, give me a call in a week or ten days, and maybe we can get together for a half a coffee. And he hung this phone up, and he looked at this man that was standing in front of him there, and he said, I hope you can see by that phone call. It's my first day here. And he said, I haven't met any counselor, none of my parishioners yet, so I don't have a lot of time to spend today. And the fellow said, I won't be too long, Reverend. I'm just here to hook up that phone. And, <clears throat> you know, time and time and time again, We've gone on with this same thing, and it just don't work. We'd get a new person, and man, we talk A to him all day and take him to a meeting tonight and then a restaurant till he falls asleep, and then someone else takes over from there. The mind can only absorb what the seed can endure, and we're just cramming it in, and we're thinking, "God, Almighty, I'm carrying the message. No, you're driving the guy crazy. You know, it's like this minister that was sent to this western town. And he went to church on Sunday morning. He looked out and there was one cowboy sitting there in the, in the church. And he walked down to him and he said, well, look, there's only two of us. Do you think we should hold a service? Well, he said, Reverend, I don't know a great deal about preaching, but I know quite a bit about cattle. And if I pulled up to a crowd a load of hay and there was a cow there, I'd feed it. So he got the message. And he went up and gave this guy everything he had in Scripture, verse, and song. And when he got done, he'd come down and he said, Well, what'd you think? And he said, Well, Reverend, I don't know a great deal about preaching, but he said, I know quite a bit about cattle. And if I pulled up to a crowd with a load of hay and there was a cow there, I wouldn't give it the whole load. So and I think
1: <laughs> I
0: think this is what happens. This is what happens. Is we're gonna just give it to him. Really. Really. The first thing I gotta find out is does he want it? Does he want it? It says, nobody wants to be told anything about alcohol by one who hates it. We wouldn't even do temperance drinking any good. It says in here, it says, many lives could have been saved had it not been for such stupidity. This is in our book. Now, these are not my opinions. So if you don't like it, I'd write New York and, and tell them what you think of <laughs> it. But these are the things. We're trying to go on what other people tell us rather than what it tells us in the book. I hear all kinds of things about there's 12 promises on page 83 in there. That's for spot readers. They check it out and say, you're right, there's 59 promises in this book. There's 12 distinct threats. There's 14 exclamation marks. And according to the English language, any time an exclamation mark is used, it's an order. And people say there are no musts. There's a lot of them. This is just candy-coated rationalization. And so I met a fella three years after I was sober, C C from Prince Albert, and I drove up four weeks ago, Lindy and I, to his fortieth birthday, him and Elmer, and it was minus forty one below zero. You talk about cold. But I met him and he was speaking at a at a roundup and he had talked about the steps and he had talked on the steps. And I went back to Saskatchewan and went through some of the meetings in the way they done the steps. And so I, I come back out, and we started one of those step meetings. And I've been sharing that every Monday night for the last 25 years. And, uh, uh, and unless I'm not at home. And, and and this is a step-taken meeting. This is not a step-discussion group. And there's a lot of different Because nowhere in here anywhere have they sent a letter and say, Lou, what do you think about step five there in the big book? It says, here are the steps we took it doesn't say that we'll take, that we took, which are suggested as the program of recovery. And I sat down and I started to look at the steps as they were printed. And I hear many people say, as I interpret these steps, and I had to go look up the meaning of the word interpretation in a dictionary and it says avoidance of truth. <laughs> They don't want me to interpret these steps. If they had them, they would have got me involved when they were first printed. (laughs) These steps are laid out really nice. And there's only one set of steps for every country in the world. So there is not a way for me to do step one, and Don to do step one, and Jim. There's not that way at all. It says here are the steps we took. And I started looking at them as they're printed. And it's quite interesting. Every year that I've gone through these series after series after series, I, I have found amazing results. We have—I have little cards when people have come to the to the step meeting and they put on their sobriety date, and name, and address. 118 women over a period of of time that went through the the full step thing the way we do it. 118, 111 have never had a drink. That's results. And so I really don't care what people say. We're talking about results. And this thing is out of the big book and the 12 by 12. The thing, you know, I get up and say, my name is Lou Finnamore and I'm an alcoholic. And that's a formality. That was since the beginning of time. That's what everybody says. The first step doesn't say that. It says for me to admit that I'm powerless over alcohol. Whole lot of difference. See, for me to say I'm an alcoholic, that was a joke in my drinking days. I'd say, who the hell ain't? Everybody I know drinks is an alcoholic. This asks me to admit that I'm powerless over alcohol. And when I looked up the meaning of the word powerless, it removes any doubt that you can ever take another drink and guarantee your next move. These things is removing any negative thinking that's in your head. And it does, it says that my life had become, had become unmanageable. You see? Where I was saying, well I was born with an unmanageable life and I guess I'll die with that. That's the rationalization that I had. This tells me, that as the result of the excessive use of alcohol, my life had become unmanageable. It doesn't tell me I was born of what. Doesn't tell me I'm one die of what. It's entirely up to me. And then it said we came to believe. Tell me why I came here. I didn't believe in our judicial system, our penal system, our legislature, our, finance, our welfare system. I didn't believe in my wife, my family. No. It said I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore. Us to sanity, which they say is positive thinking. It's got nothing to do with nut houses. And I'm into vintage cars. I have some old vintage cars, real old ones, that I've redone. And I worked up the meaning of the word restore. And that's why a dictionary is so helpful. Especially if you know it all. Then you, it really helps. The word restore says to return to original form. Isn't that neat? To know that I can be restored to a positive way of thinking. And then I realized that only one of the 12 steps they ask us to make a decision, because it's not one of our strong points. Agreeing with them, yes, but making them, no. And I still don't like it. Somebody said, let's go for dinner. I'll say, fine. i say, where do you want to go? i say, where do you want to go? David, it's up to you. We go there, and the food's rotten. i say, it was your idea to come here. It wasn't my idea. Buying a car. How much can you afford? I don't know. What's a workout at? Three pages of paper later. How's $454 a month? Right on. No problem. You ain't going to get nothing anyway. So, but decisions is not one of our strong points. And it says here, it doesn't say we'll make a decision. It says we made one. To turn our will and our lives, which is our thinking and our actions. That's all we turn over. Thinking and actions. If you're turning anything else over, I wish you all the best. You're going to need it. And then it don't say we turn it over to God. It says we turn it over to the care of God. And see, I was leaving out words here and there, just enough to let me off the hook. See, I have money in the bank, and if they turn me down for a loan, I can take my savings out. It's just in care, ain't them. We turn it over to the care of God. And you see, in our step meeting, it's all made out, like in step one. You know, how many people has died in your life, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews? Which one affected you the most? Well, my grandma. How come? Well, she let me away with more than grandpa would. So that means that we set up a pattern way back when we were young to go to the people that let us away with things, let us off, protected us. How many schools did you attend? Fifteen. How come? Was your family evicted or transferred? How come so many schools? How many boyfriends or girlfriends did you have all through your teenage years? Thirty-five, forty, twenty? How come? How long did each one last? Who broke them off? You or them? The trouble that I was into when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, the patterns set up way back. The patterns were there. And so I, I can't blame no one for it. It was me. And these is, this is why I look at these steps now as they're printed. And it says we made a searching and fearless moral, not a fearful immoral. Nothing to do with moral. Searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And then it says, "We admitted to God, to ourselves, and another human being." And only for a drunk would they use that other word—the exact nature of our wrongs. The average person, they'd say, "Just admit, admit your wrongs." For us, they said "exact," and they said "nature." There's no "s" on that; it's singular. Oh, I'm a liar. I'm a liar. If you're a prostitute, you're a prostitute. Who the hell can remember how many tricks they turned in 20 years, or how many lies they told, or how much you stole? The exact nature. I listen to so much where we're trying to prove that I'm a worse drunk than this man. I No. I don't have to. All I have to do is be as bad as I was. It's okay to just be you. And I hear people today say, I'm having so much trouble trying to get rid of these defects of character. Well, read the steps. It says we were entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character, and we humbly asked him to do it. And I, I really believe that the humility part is where the problem comes in. You know, the the ability to stand and the willingness to kneel. And it says we made a list of all persons we had harmed and become willing to make amends to them all. It says we made a list of all persons we had harmed and become willing to make amends to them all. Then they said we made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them Or others, which is the third party. A lot of people say them or me. It's the third party. You cannot carry a conscience at the expense of another person's feelings. I don't have to worry about hurting myself. It's hurting innocent parties. And the other thing I hear, like a nurse me, a lot of people say, Well, I've made a lot of apologies. And I hate to say this, but an apology is not an amend. (laughs) When they amend the Criminal Code of Canada, they don't all stand up and apologize. Maybe they should. But they change it. They change it. You see, I can walk in and say to Don, I'm sorry I threw that football through your front window. That is not an amend. An an apology is merely an acknowledgement that I said it, did it, or thought it. The amend is when I put in the new window. And we're always trying to get off as easy as we possibly can so that I don't look too bad. But apologizing ain't an amend. And when I got to step 10, I looked at it and it said where we continue to take a personal inventory. And it said when we were wrong, not if we were wrong. And it says promptly admitted it, not explain it. And you see, I could come along and to anybody, you know, and say to Harley, you know, I'm sorry of what I said to you last Saturday night. And I'll give him a couple of minutes and if he don't say anything, I'll say, but now the reason I said it was this. And in five minutes, I'll have him apologizing that he was even there Saturday night. And that's what I (laughs) want. I don't care if it takes me weeks to get this thing around in my favor. We are here to clean our side of the street. And then it said we sought through prayer and meditation. They're telling me that that's the only two ways there is to improve my conscious contact with God. And here they are working on an assumption that we have one. The only two ways it can be improved is through prayer and meditation. As we understood it, praying only for knowledge of his will for us. And what's it say in here, his will for us to be happy, joyous and free. And the power to carry it out. Then what I like is the next one. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, and I looked up that and it said a complete transformation of thought. If I've completely changed my way of thinking as a result of these steps, then we carry this message, not my message. I thought it said we carried this message, but it's telling me until I've done all of that, I have no message to carry. Now, it doesn't say I can't answer a phone call and introduce somebody to AA, but not to carry the message. It says we carry this message, and it says we practice these principles, and there's 33 of them, the principles. We practice these principles in all our affairs. You see, for years I practiced affairs with no principles.
1: <laughs>
0: and uh, now just change that all around, you got a whole new learning process. And you see, this is the whole thing about it, is the lack of understanding. Nobody wants to talk about sex. You know, hell, I can talk about it for hours. I'm dynamite talking about it. The performance is no hell, but I'm dynamite talking about it. You know, I say to my wife, "I'm a lot like a rabbit. This won't take long, did it?" <laughs> and uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we we take and we always want to look good to the opposite sex. We always want to look good to the opposite sex. No, we don't have to. We don't have to. There's nothing like Bill said one time. We all have certain qualities. We all have certain capabilities, we all have hidden limitations. Did you ever try to get a drunk to admit he has limitations? (laughs) I wish you all the luck in the world. No, I have to do what I have to do to be a better person. I have six children today that call me dad. And I have 12 grandchildren that call me grandpa. And these are things that I don't have a right to. The type of person I was. These are a privilege. You people that have rights, God bless you. I don't. I have privileges. Every dream I ever had as a little boy has been fulfilled. Every place I've ever wanted to go, I've been. And everybody I've ever wanted to meet, I've met. How can you beat a deal like that? You know, there's nothing so bad that it cannot be worse. There's nothing that time cannot mend. And troubles, no matter how many you have, must surely come to an end. You have stumbled well, so have I in my past. Don't think of the past and regret. And you're sorry, God knows, so leave it at that. Let the past be the past and forget. Don't despair, don't give up, but just be yourself, the self that is highest and best, and forgive all my faults, and I'll forgive yours, and we leave up to God all the rest. Seven years ago, I got a phone call. And this voice on the phone said, we heard one of your talks from Sam and Arm on feelings. He said, we'd like to know if you'd speak at our national convention. And I said, "Uh, where is it? He said, it's in Johannesburg in the Republic of South Africa. And I thought, "God, if they only knew this little boy, and I'm still a little boy, I still have fears. I can't prove any of them, but I have them f e a r is false evidence appearing real. Most of our fears aren't real. They sent me a ticket and and I have a job, and I have had jobs." where I can take as much time as I want. So I went for two and a half months and spoke 26 times to Africa. But I went to England and and I got on there and from there to Egypt and then down in South Africa. And I was in about an hour and a half out of Johannesburg. I just broke out hysterically crying. And this little stewardess come running back and she said, can I help you, sir? And I said, no, honey, you wouldn't understand. If you haven't been there, you don't know. And when I landed in Johannesburg in South Africa, I had all kinds of opinions. And man, a lot of them got wiped out pertaining to problems. Pertaining to problems. I stayed three days in Soweto where so many people have died. And I'm the only white person in six and a half million black people and they treated me like a king. I had something presented to me that only dignitaries get, and I'm a drunk. When I went down into Durban and from there up into Zululand in the Valley of a Thousand Hills, the year before I went there, the President of the United States was refused entry into Zululand because Budalese, who's head of the Zulu tribe, would not allow any heads of states in there. Here's a tramp from Vancouver get in there because his wife had 18 months of sobriety when I arrived in Durban. I want to tell you, this fellowship is a ticket that will let you go wherever you want to go. It says you're building an archway through which you walk a free man. I've got one more trip to make, and I will have seen all four corners of the world, and I've never been in a travel agency in my life. I don't need to. You people are my travel agency. We're in over 115 countries in the world today. You're working for the largest organization in the world. When you walk out your front door every morning, do a good job. You don't turn around and when you walk out and say, look what I got. You look up and say, look what I am. I have some business cards with little things on them that I've got over the years. and One of my cards that says, you don't have to tell how you live each day. You don't have to say if you work or you play. A tried true barometer serves in its place. However you live, it will show in your face. The false deceit that you bear in your heart will not stay inside where it first got a start for seeing you in blood or a thin veil of lace. What you wear in your heart, it'll show in your face. If your life is unselfish, if for others you live, for not what you get, but how much you can give, if you live close to God and his infinite grace, you don't have to tell it. It'll show in your face. And, you know, you you look at so many stories you hear that are so funny, and yet if you can look past it to see what's behind it. We had a guy who died in Vancouver a few years ago, and he was our drunken barber, and he was sober 35 years before he died. But there's more funny stories about this guy, old Ross. And he was drunk one day in his barbershop, and a guy that had one arm come in, and he wanted to shave, and Ross said, Oh, my God Almighty, I can't shave you, I'll cut your bloody throat. And the guy said, I got an appointment, an appointment in Vancouver, and I need to shave. So Ross said, okay, lay down in that chair. So he stretched him out, and he shaved him. And when this poor guy got up, he had hunks of paper stuck all over his bloody face. He was all cut to hell. And he got up and went to pay Ross. And Ross said to him, have you been in here before? He said, oh, no, I lost that in the sawmill. (laughs) (laughs) You
1: know,
0: (laughs) we had another fellow that just died. You talk about compassion from Alanon. He just died about three years ago, old Ross O'Brien, and he had to be one of the most miserable people that you ever met. And his wife, she was a character. She looked like old Tugbo Danny Maud. But Ross had been gone for a week. He hadn't been home. He'd been on a drunk in a little town called Courtney, British Columbia. And he was sitting in a beer parlor, drunk, and a guy at the next table had been listening to him, sitting there crying and muttering to himself. And he said, you know, I went to an outfit a year ago. And he said, they never helped me. But he said, you know, I think they could do something for you. So he dumped about eight cups of coffee in old Ross and he took him to this meeting and he couldn't get over. Everybody hugging and kissing, and they told him to come back, which was news to him. He couldn't get over it. He was just elated. Well, after this meeting, he staggered home and he hadn't been home for a week and he walked in and he said there was dead silence. And he said, I took it as long as I could. And he said, Finally, I looked at her and he said, Honey, I found a group of people downtown who were happy and sober, and she said, well, stay away from them, you son of a bitch, or they won't be happy and sober very long.
1: <laughs>
0: and, and I think that these are some of the things that we look back on. And and I look back at some of the privileges I have. When I was sober, 13 and a half years, a fellow who I brought to to Alcoholics Anonymous owned four of the largest custom-designed jewelry stores in the city of Vancouver. And one day he phoned me, he said, Dean, and he said to me, he said, you know, Lou, he said, I've listened to you speak and watching you chair meetings and that, and he said, I have no idea what you're doing driving a truck. He said, how would you like to manage my main jewelry store? I said, I'd like to. Love it. I put an ad in the paper, sold a trucking company. By this time, I have some new trucks. And five weeks later, I'm sitting in a gorgeous custom-designed jewelry store in Vancouver. Now, here's a little boy. I didn't know an emerald was green or a ruby was red. And I'm sitting in there, and he went to the bank, and a lady walked in, a gorgeous lady, and dumped out some gemstones on this beautiful burgundy pad and said, what can you do with these? And I felt like saying, puke, you know. First of all, I don't know what they are. And I'm thinking, what in hell do I do now? And you talk about sweating fast? (laughs) Ragnar come back from the bank, and he sat down, he straightened this deal out, and after that night when I went home, he said, you forget about going to an AA meeting. He said, I want you to sit down tonight and figure out every reason why this lady wouldn't want to buy a piece of jewelry in this store. And what he was talking about was handling objections. We do not like objections. We do not like no's. We really enjoy yeses. Oh, you're a good person. We do not like rejection. At the end of that month, and I had never sold in my life, Ragnar st- stayed in the store with me there to help me out, and I went and took a course in the grading of diamonds and that. But at the end of that month, his sales was $8,700, and mine was just over 33000 and I never looked back. Uh, for the next three years, I stayed in that, and then I quit and went selling Letrolux vacuum cleaners to get some experience in rejection, and I'll tell you, you'll get her there. They still tell the story around Canada at the Electrolux conventions about me going to a lady's house in Deep Cove, my third day selling vacuums, and I, I rang the doorbell and she opened it and I gave her my card and I said, good morning, I'm Mr. Fenimore, I'm your Electrolux representative in this area now, and she slammed that door. Honest to God, I never knew a door could be slammed like that. I really didn't. Whatever possessed me to do it, I have no idea, but I ran around the back of her house and rang her doorbell there, and when she came to the door, I said, God, I hope you're not as unhappy as the lady was just at the front door. I never sold her a vacuum, but she said, would you like to come in for a coffee? And that's what I really wanted. And, and what I'm trying to say is, is the whole thing about it, the purpose of this philosophy is to break down barriers. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous get into Russia without any fanfare. We didn't have to get involved in politics. Just do God's work. You see, it says, trust God, clean house, and help others. It's not a case of believing. People say, I don't believe in God. They don't give us that choice. It says we came to believe that a power and greater than yourself. If we were given the choice, we'd still be stuck in that step. It says trust God. There's a lot of difference believing and trusting. People think that if they believe, they've got it made. No, no, that's the problem. Lack of faith was our dilemma. I look at the Grouse Mountain in Vancouver where the ski run is. I believe that cable is very strong, but I don't trust it enough to get in the bucket. So, you see, l- lack of faith was our dilemma. Trust is something that is so vital. Last week, I listened to my 634th Step 5. I listened to two a week at the treatment center. You can trust me with anything, yet I might still lie to somebody, but you can trust me with your Step 5. You better learn to trust. You better learn to trust. It's the thing that'll pull you through when all else fails. And so after that, I got into another business that I had for 11 years till a big shopping center came in and... Two and a half years ago, I got a phone call from a fellow, and he said, we have a position, and he said, we really would like you to take it. And he said, I want you to have lunch, and I'll explain it to you. And so I went, and they explained it, and told me what the pay would be, and the benefits, and so on. And I, today, am the program director, and the counselor for the alcohol and drug program for the Racing Commission of British Columbia, all the thoroughbred and standardbred racing. And uh, it's something that I was involved with the racing years ago, and I really love, and it's something I can really enjoy, and I'm my own boss, and I can go to as many roundups as I want to, and I don't have to tell nobody nothing when I'm coming, when I'm going, because I usually don't know anyway. But the thing is, it's so nice, and if you stay in Alcoholics Anonymous, every dream you've ever had will come true. One day you'll be doing something you really love to do, and it'll just be dropped right in your lap. You have no idea what's in store for you. This is the hidden part of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is the hidden part of it. In the back of the book it says, I will be given peace of mind in exact proportion to the peace of mind I bring into the lives of other people. It's got nothing to do with what I do for myself. I'm scared to pray for anything for fear of getting (laughs) it. A year ago last August I was speaking at a roundup. And there was a lady. Setting out in the audience with a nephew of hers that she had at the roundup. And after I was done speaking, she came up and, and put her arms around me... ...and she said, you know, you opened up so many areas of my life. She says, I, I just can't believe how you touched me. And I gave her one of my cards. I said, if you're ever in Vancouver, give us a call. We never even had a cup of coffee that weekend. I never seen her again for seven months. But two months later, she wrote me another letter said, you know, I've gathered up a bunch of your tapes and I've been listening to them. She said, uh, I find things about you that, that uh, uh, I really admire and appreciate. And she said, if you don't want me to write anymore, let me know. And so I'm not le- writing letters. It's not one of my strong points. I, I do write them. So I phoned her back and I said, no, you keep writing. Anyone that writes me, I am gladly uh, accept them. So she did, and then last a year ago this past winter, she went away for three months to Australia, New Zealand, and Fiji for the winter, and she phoned and asked if I would meet her plane when it came back to Alberta, the next province, last February the 23rd, and so I flew back and met her plane. That's the first time I'd ever been around her, and three weeks later, I went back and gave her a diamond ring. October the 27th, we were married, so... Uh, I've been married for four months, and, and yet I have a grown family. And I never got married before because I didn't find the person that I wanted to marry. See, lots of times, I think sometimes now we should get married early in the morning, and if it don't work out, you haven't ruined the whole day, you know. Uh, <laughs> I see people getting split up, and I didn't even know they were together, you know. There's a quite a, a bet to it. And you know, and Linda was saying the other day to me, and she said to me, do you ever get mad? And uh, I have no idea when the last time I was ever mad. I really don't. I don't get into debates. It says in this book, we would like to put a book together that leaves no room for argument or contention. We will do our utmost to do that. And when anyone brings up anything, I don't care what it pertains to, I get this thing out, and I say, well, let's see what it says. And it takes the onus off me. You don't have to come back and say, well, Fenimore said this or Fenimore said that. What's it saying here for me to do? And so we have a super life. In the year and a half or just the, over a year and a half that we have known, we have never had a disagreement. We have never had an argument. Because I know her and she knows me. And I try my damnedest not to do anything that causes any hard feelings. And she does the same. And you see, that's the whole thing about life. is for me to make you feel good. Not me feel good. Give and ye shall receive. And I think these are the things that this South has helped me so much. When I first came down here in 1969 to Lake Bistanoa, Louisiana, uh, like up where I come from, all they do is rant and rave and curse and swear, and, and it is unbelievable, you know, the swearing. And I come down here and I found in that area down there, lots of times there there's not a lot of swearing. So I got a little card done up, and I, it's been a long, hard road for me to not rant and rave and curse and swear, but I got a little card made up, one of my cards, and it says why I swear, and it's uh, it covers a lot of areas, because today, in, in some of the meetings up home, it's unbelievable, but it says why I swear. It says, one, it pleases my mother. Two, it's a fine mark of manliness. Three, it proves I have self-control. Four, it indicates how clearly my mind operates. Five, it makes my conversation so pleasing to everybody. Six, it leaves no doubt in anyone's mind as to my good breathing. Seven, it impresses people that I have more than ordinary education. And eight, it is an unmistakable sign of culture and refinement. Nine, it makes me a variable, desirable personality amongst women, children, and respectable society. And ten, it's my way of honoring God. You people have been awfully good to me. I'd like to thank the committee for inviting me down for the hospitality I've seen. That archive room out there is something like I've never seen in all my travels. It's something to treasure. See, a lot of people don't treasure these things. They think, oh, the bloody thing is there. I was sitting today in the hospitality room down there. And the fellow that working in there, preparing the meats and putting them out—I suppose we take it for granted when you go in there. It's there, make a sandwich. He's working his backside off. Potato chips, salad dressing—I uh, notice these things. I really do. I'm so appreciative of these. Why? Because that is all part of what makes this roundup such a super deal. It isn't just the guy that came from Timbuktu to speak. We put so much importance on 30 years sober, 20 years sober. The only difference between one year and 30 years is experience. Nothing more, nothing less. Nothing more, nothing less. So I'm going to close with a little story, and I know we do this here. But I want you to think about it. As you're going up that ladder of success, And this is the story of the couple in the prairies in Canada, where it gets cold in the winter, and they had a big farm. And in the fall, in September, in the fall, it was cool and frosty, they went out to look over their fields. And they took their little boy with them. And sometimes, as little boys do, he run off and he get lost. And they hollered and yelled and screamed, and they couldn't find him. And they ran back into their house, and they phoned the reserve army and asked if there was any chance of sending out some men. And the fellow said, we'll have an officer and some men there at daybreak in the morning. And they did. And the father and mother took these men out to where they were the night before. And the officer said to the men, he said, line up across the field. And they did. And he said, join hands. And they did. And he said, head across the field. And they did. And they found the little boy and he was dead. He had perished. And his father reached down and picked up the little boy and he looked at his wife and he said, You see, if we'd have held hands last night, we wouldn't have lost him. I only pray that I can be the type of friend you've been to me. Good afternoon and God bless you.